On today's podcast, we are joined by Howard Croston, the main rod and reel designer for Hardy, to speak about the company's 150th anniversary, what it takes to become world champion of freshwater trout fishing, and how to improve your casting and fishing techniques on the water. We hope you enjoy. We broke everything. We broke lines. We broke hooks. We broke rods. We broke our minds. We broke marriages. We broke the whole thing. We uh, came up with the idea of going out that night and chasing girls, and whoever had the biggest pair of panties won the pot. I knocked another arrow, and he turned around the other way, and I shot him going through the other way. So I double-lunged him both ways. But it was nothing for us to paddle an air mattress out into government cut. I got him on. All right, now we're going to teach him a lesson. I'm just an old guy that likes to fish. I'm not quitting yet. And he said, well, who the hell do you think you are, Sue App? And I said, that's exactly who I am. Life's journey to the grave should not be one arriving with a pretty, well-preserved body, but rather skid in broadside in a cloud of smoke, thoroughly torn out, thoroughly used up, proclaiming wildly, wow, what a ride. <laughs> There's something fishy going on here. You got your cough Nick, medication rolling? Nikki, you ready to hit that red button? We got Howard in the house. Howard Croston. How are you doing, man? Welcome to the Mill House. Awesome. Good to see you again. Yeah, you too. I mean, uh, and Nikki, you know, you've never fished with Howard or seen him cast, but. I've seen him cast in Las Rocas when we oh, went down right. yeah. bone fishing. I mean, dementia. It's alive and wild. That's, that's worrying, Andy. We spent a week in <laughs> Las Rocas chasing bone fish, man. I just never saw him. <laughs> um, I'd like to introduce you to, you know, our listeners that, you know, you are um, basically the main designer of Hardy Rods and Reels. We've been working together for about 14 years with the saltwater product. Yeah. Uh, you're a tournament caster. You used to compete against Ray Jeff. And two, you're the world champion uh, trout fisherman, you know, after pursuing that for 18 years. So there's a lot to talk about here today. Yeah. Um, getting into it. Uh, this is a reel that I bought. This is a, f a f how many years ago? It's like 55 years ago. Yeah, that, that reel is out of warranty. <laughs> you can see my name scratched on the back of it. But when I was like 11 years old, I tied flies all summer to buy a hardy reel, oh. you know, and it was all based on, you know, this sound, you know? Yeah. And I, to tell you the truth, even though I work with Hardy, uh, with the saltwater product, I feel like it's almost sacrilegious for a trout fisherman to be dry fly fishing without an English-made Hardy reel. Oh. I mean, it's really like the Rolex of, of trout reels. It is. That is, that is the classic fly reel right in your hands, though. <clears throat> Lightweight series is, well, I wouldn't even like to think how many of those are in right. out there now. Well, if you take a look at some of the old photographs with Joe Brooks and Lefty Cray, they bone fished with this reel yeah, just absolutely. because of that sound, you yeah. know, <clears throat> excuse me. Um, but this is the 150th anniversary of Hardy. It is big uh, year, big year for the brand. Um, you've got a new reel coming out, which is the, the 150th edition, right? That's it. The St. George. Yeah. Beautiful piece of kit. Right. And so tell me about the ring. Uh, 
Yeah, so this was a this is something that's really been synonymous with the Hurdy brand over the years. Um, this was a just an agate lined ring, mm-hmm. um, just a line guard really to protect your fly line. Um, it's really something that sort of classic followers of the brand really sort of identify with right. this kind of this kind of design. Um, you know, and these reels are as, as serviceable now as they were when they were first ever manufactured. You know, but this this particular model's uh, special for the for the one fifty anniversary. It's only going to be available in limited numbers. How many how many reels are you going to make? We're just doing one hundred and fifty. Obviously, one one fifty right. years in in existence, so one hundred and fifty models. So, so get your hands on one of those and hang on to it. Yeah, try and grab hold of one of them while you can. This is mine. <laughs> <laughs> we can talk about that. <coughs> what? Um, let's go into the. We'll talk about real, uh, rod and reel design, you know, towards the back end of it. But um, what are you most proud of? Wow, you a- know, you're a world champion. You were a big-time tournament caster, but you never won the world championships. What was it like competing against Steve Rajeff, who won 14 world championships? Yeah, so my my flirtation with sort of world casting, world-level casting championships was brief. I went to one world championships, uh, and... To be honest, casting against Steve, I pretty much realised then that, you know, that was not the route for me. Um, I came sort of from, in the UK, we had a lot of casting competitions, right? And I pretty much won all of them multiple times and didn't really have anybody that was challenging me to any great degree, especially in the accuracy casting. So then I went to World sort of expecting, to some degree, a similar a similar situation or at least to be able to compete and you know i got chewed up pretty brad- badly by steve to be honest particularly in the distance event you know so i'm pretty ignorant in this field so when you talk about the accuracy casting are there hoops lined up or what's the yeah so but sort of in the home game where we used to compete it was uh you had like these, these targets that were probably about i don't know 70 centimeters across just a round disc and you had like two and a half minutes hit the targets as many times as you can you know, go around the course as many times as you can. How, how many targets? There'd be like five, five targets. Um, so like my, the best score I ever had in one of those things was a, a through for two and a half minutes and never missed one. So I went around that course like time after time after time and had a massive score. And how far away are these, are there different Oh, ranges? they're like staggered, short, long, gotcha. short, long, short, long. But then when you get to Worlds, it's a totally different deal. It's like... They take a lot of time to complete the course, uh, and they never ever miss, pretty much. And I, you know, I had a good, I had a good run. I had like ninety-five points out of a hundred, but that wasn't enough to qualify me for the final. And then I spent like a week at an airfield, just sitting around, waiting for the thing to be over. You know, and I sort of thought, wow, I've spent like a year practicing for this, and I've come all the way over here, and I've missed one target, and I'm out. You know. Wow. And then I thought, yeah, I think maybe competitive fishing rather than casting might be a better route, you know, right. because I like to catch fish. So Why was Steve so good? Besides being able to throw far, you could throw accurately, but his body build had to have been a great asset, being as big and strong as he is. Yeah, I mean, there's a saying, right, which is a good big one will always beat a good little one. So basically, I mean, it doesn't matter how good my technique is, my technique can be perfect. But if you've got that guy who's, what, what Steve, he's way over six foot, you know, really big build, strong guy, he's got perfect technique. 
I'm not going to throw the thing as far as he is. Right. You know, and I sort of realized that. And right. what distances do you have to throw to be competitive in that distance event? It's a long way. It's a long way. How, I mean, how far is long? It's, I mean, the measuring meters, I can't remember what Steve's records are now, but, you know, I wasn't reaching those distances. So like 70 meters? Uh, you know, I honestly can't remember. It's The last time I competed was 90... I said ninety-eight, something like that. Right, and it's not fishing gear, right? It's it's, it's, a, it's shooting head, it's a tungsten shooting lines. head. It's thin running line that's like <clears throat> two pound diameter mono. I mean, it's like it's a throwing sport. It's so they throw sport. it like one hundred and fifty yards, right? Yeah, they like, throw it a long way, a long way. I, I can't even. Uh, that's, I'm too that, traumatized. No, that's, they, can't, they can't throw it that far. That's that's uh, yeah. four hundred fifty. No, it's not. Feet. That. No, but I'm, I'm traumatized by by some of the results that I saw in them in them events. How many shots? How many opportunities do you get? To throw that distance cast. When I did it, bear in mind it's the late 90s, so it might have changed. But I'm sure you had like seven and a half minutes to get as many out there as you could. But you've got to recover a lot of line and you've right. got to lay it all out. And You know, particularly for me, if I didn't get a good shot in the first three, I was done. You know, because the gear's heavy. It's it's heavy, <clears throat> it's hard to use. You know, you get it's, fatigued. Oh, yeah. You can it's really easy. start to feel it. But yeah. you were telling me that some people had um, like a caddy, like a casting caddy, like golfers have a caddy, where they would, after you'd make the cast, they would help put the running line and spread it all out so it would never coil up. Is that correct? Yeah, I'm pretty sure the one I did in 98, some of those guys had uh, guys to lay the line for them. You know, I didn't. I just went over there with me with my dad and, and, you know, just jumped straight into the breach and, you know. Gave it Jumped a go. into the fire. Yeah. Just well, to... what can you tell the uh, our listeners? How maybe to cast further or cast more accurately? Because I think that's a little bit more relevant to them with their a- actual application. Yeah. Than 100%. listening to you know what these guys do, um, throwing two hundred feet or whatever. Yeah. I mean, the first thing is when you when you watch like the average guy fishing, right? The first thing is they always, they pretty much always get too quick, so they're always trying to cast fast, and they're always putting way too much effort in. So the stroke is too fast. Yeah, they just really try and and throw it rather than cast it, right? So you see a lot of people putting all this effort in. You know, modern fly rods, an incredible transmitter of of casting energy. You know, we're blessed by some of the gear we've got these days. Makes it so much easier to generate line speed, and you don't need to put a lot of input into the thing. And you get these guys, and they're just really overpowering it. So they're throwing more with the arm, and not allowing, not allowing the rod to do the throwing. Yeah, a lot of it, and and then just overpowering the rod. Even you know when they make that cast, and you'll see sometimes at the shows. We've been to a show recently. A lot of guys on the casting pond, they're hitting it, and then you see all these like shock waves running down the fly line. Right, and that's that rod tip bouncing and <clears throat> counterflexing just because they've given it too much. One of the things I notice when I watch you cast. The upper loop is flat, or the upper line uh, when you when you when you make that cast, the upper line is absolutely flat. The loop is perfectly round, and the bottom line coming back to the rod tip is perfectly flat. Is that because of the efficiency of of energy and the rod's not bouncing to create that wave? Yeah, that's a couple of things. That's just giving it just the right amount of power to make it work, but also. Really, when you when you stop that rod, it's a it's a sharp stop after some very very straight tracking. Really, so when you apply that power to the rod, you've got to apply it in a straight line path. You've got to make that rod tip travel in a straight line path, stop it efficiently, transfer that energy that you've 
put into the rod, into the line, without overpowering it, and then you'll form that really tight, neat loop that's aerodynamic, so it's going to travel, it's going to use that energy efficiently, it's not going to wave off in different directions, you're not right. going to lose any so lines. So no semi-arc of the rod tip in the stroke itself? No, I try and keep that tracking as nice and straight and pull it straight through as I can. I was right. going to ask about that, because a lot of people have that tendency or the issue of a tailing loop. Can you talk a little bit about, you know, what causes that tailing loop? Yeah, so a lot, a lot of tailing loops are just caused by creep. So basically all that is, is when, when you stop that rod into the back cast, you get a lot of guys who've got a tendency to creep the hand forward and then apply the power. Before so, the line really gets unraveled behind you. Yeah, even if it does straighten behind you, just when you creep into the forward cast, you don't get a good application of power. You cause that rod tip to kick a little bit and you'll throw that trailing loop because the line does exactly what the rod tip does. You know, that's a given. For so the people that don't understand what creep is, once the rod stops in the back cast, before before you wait for the weight of the fly line to move that rod tip forward, a lot of people will slide that rod tip to about 40% before they actually make that cast. Yeah. So if they're trying to throw 70, 80 feet with only a half a cast, they got to hit it too hard. Yeah, they, they put that power in late. Right. Yeah, that power so in. that rod creep is talking about from the extension of the back cast, once that stops, that rod comes forward forward with no resistance on the line for the forward cast. So that rod tip goes from all the way back to halfway. That's what they call creep. Right. Yeah. Let me ask you this. If you're trying to throw a real long distance, when you stop the rod, are you, will you creep back to get a bigger stroke? Yeah, 100%. So that's, that's a little different. So... We call that drift. So we drift. drift into that back cast. And all that allows you to do then is apply that power over a longer arc. So if you're applying that power over a longer stroke, you're applying a little bit more power, but you're getting it in there smooth. And that's the main thing, that smooth application of power between two sort of pretty sharp stops. The stops are what transfers the energy to the line. That smooth application of power between the two stops is what really loads that rod and gives you that line speed when you do stop. I've always told people, you know, trout fishing, you can, it's like throwing a dart right in front of you. It's a small little stroke. But once you start casting into a 20 mile an hour wind, you got to throw it 60 feet. It's the similar relationship to throwing a baseball all the way across the field. You got to reach back and throw it. Yeah, 100%. But I also noticed too, watching you throw a long way, your, your, your false casting stays the same pretty much. But your very last false cast, when you want to throw it a long way, that's when you let line go out on that back cast. Is yeah. that the key to throwing far? Yeah, for me it is. My my particular style, I like to I like to slip a little bit into the into the back cast. Um, so really, it's a it's sort of like a, a win or lose strategy, right? Because sometimes it goes wrong if you don't practice it a lot. Um, but, you allow too much line to go out. Yeah, if you, if you let cast. too much feed in, you're gonna you're gonna lose your loop shape and everything's gonna go wrong. Especially when you're using a weight forward line, right? Because of the taper. So if you get too far out past that taper, it's all gonna collapse on you. But that little bit of extra slip into the back cast, just for me, gives me that little bit of extra load on that final cast when I'm gonna try and bury it. Mm -hmm. You know, uh, and it's good in a fishing situation when you've got to extend to cover fish quick. So the, the fly fishing competition or the fly casting competition that went before your, the whole trout tournament scene. Yeah. I mean, I fished since I was a kid, but you know, I, I think it was like 98. I did the worlds. I'm pretty sure it was 98. And then, uh, I entered a trout fishing river tournament in like 99. I think it was. 
And that was, I just thought, I'm going to give it a go. You know, mm-hmm. I knew some guys who were doing it. I knew some guys in the England team, and I thought, well, you know, I'm competitive. And you crushed it. The first one I won, yeah. I of mean, course. it was the river was, you know, we turned up and the river's in like this huge flood. I mean, there's trees coming down and everything, and there's like 60 people in the car park all competing, and they were all like, everyone was complaining and like it should be cancelled and everything. But the organizer said, no, it's gone ahead, you know. And I thought, well, I mean, I'm fishing in the river when it's like this anyway at home when it's coloured so you know I'll just go and fish it I mean I caught two fish it was hard you know but it was enough to win it right well let's go back to the tailing loop real quick just to follow up so if you hit that rod really hard when when that rod has creeped forward that's going to shock the rod throwing a tailing loop will that happen too if you hit it too hard at the very beginning of your forward stroke because I've always told people when you make a cast Make sure you build speed. You don't want to hit it hard right away. You build speed, and then about halfway through that arc, that's when you really accelerate it to a stop. Yeah. Am I correct in no, that 100%. assessment? No, 100%. As long as you get that power down nice and smooth, that's the big thing, you know? Because what you get when people creep, <clears throat> they sort of creeping, 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 then they hit it, and then it all goes wrong. Yeah. You know, but if you're starting from back here and you're driving that power through nice and smooth and accelerating all the way, when you turn it off, when you stop that rod, everything's smooth and it just transfers it straight into that fly line. And that's when you get the nice, good loop quality. Everything's traveling. That's when you get the long cast. Uh, give people an idea about to be a little bit more effective in a saltwater situation throwing into a 20 mile an hour wind. What is key? What is the key elements to that? Yeah, so the similar, the similar principles, right? So... The worst thing you can do in wind is trying to hit it into the wind. Because, again, all you're doing is you're, you're just overpowering that rod. You lose your loop shape. You lose everything. It just all it all goes down. One good thing that you can do, and it's it's tricky in some saltwater situations, especially where you don't want to spook those fish by a bad presentation. But if you can take that aiming point from, you know, if you're going to throw a long cast normally, you would, you would aim quite high. You'd stop the rod tip quite high and let that line shoot and extend. When you've got to be accurate in wind, if you bring that aiming point down slightly, right. so you're shooting downhill a little bit more, so that when the power comes out that line, when that line finishes turning over, it's already at its target. It's close to the surface of the water. Yeah, it's coming down at the target, because once that power comes off, everything stops traveling. Right. right. So when, you, when that line finishes unrolling, it stops to travel. What you want to do in wind, really, is aim that in there so that it arrives at the target just as it turns over. Now, the risk is, you know, you're piloting on top of the fish and it blows up. Right. But but you're not, you're, the end of your cast is not going to be too high, so the wind's not going to blow it offline. No, you want to you want to press the power down more and aim more towards the target with the mm-hmm. power, if you can. But you still recommend the upright forehand forward, forward cast as opposed to the sidearm. Yeah, you know, it's a little bit situation dependent. Um, that's, you're always more accurate like that. You know, right. when you throw in, when you want to throw accuracy. Over the top. Yeah, you're coming down and throwing at the target, line of sight. Well, one of the things I've noticed over the years, having done it for 40 years now, you have sensitive fish. A lot of people don't realize these fish will see the shadow of a, of a false cast. Yeah. You know, so that low sidearm, now you can ambush it because when you shoot it with a low sidearm, all of a sudden that 15-foot leader is over the top of the fish. Yeah. And, and also, too, water loading. Sidearm casting with a water load. So there's not a lot of false casting going on. 
I see most people, once they get past two or three false casts, now all of a sudden the wind takes over and they, they lose control of it. Yeah. So that water load, put the fly line in the water, one false cast back, back into the water, wait for your fish, wait for your shot, then go to your fish. Yeah. Tell me about um, how important the hauling hand is. You can push so hard with the, the casting hand in the rod. Can you equal or double your line speed with a good hauling hand? Oh, the holes. The hole is everything. I mean, that's like quantum leap in fly casting, right? It's, the, the hauling hand. You, you can only do so much with this because this hand is giving that rod, you know, the right amount of power to work it, basically. When you bring this left hand in, you start to haul, that's when you're really doubling up on that line speed. So you can double the line speed. Oh, yeah, you, you match your your yeah, the speed of the rod. Yeah, the haul is everything. You know, if you want to make that jump between being a, you know, somebody you can cast and being an accomplished caster, you've you've got to master the haul. That, you know, the double haul is everything in fly casting. For everything, really, for distance, accuracy, control, the whole thing. How about trout fishing? But Because trout fishing, you're not casting all that far. You need a little bit of a tick, but it's not like a saltwater cast where you rip that hauling hand way past your pocket. It depends. Your, 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 you your know, pocket. It really depends. I mean, we fish a lot of lakes at times. I, I love to fish the river, but we fish a lot of lakes, you know. And we'll throw shooting heads. You know, you've got to throw those things on, on some of our lakes. You've got to throw them 50 yards. Well, that's different than tr in the creek fishing. Yeah. Yeah. And you've really got to, that, you've really got to be able to throw it to do any good. You know, um, you know because... The application here, you know, you obviously have fished a lot of saltwater, world champion in, in the freshwater. What do you, and you know, obviously you're the world champion, but uh, what kind of a, an appeal does the saltwater fish have for you? I just love it. You know, I mean, I'll be honest, if, you know, if there was turpin swimming, swimming off the northeast coast of England, I probably wouldn't trout fish that much. Right. You know, I just, I love it. But it's always that thing, right? It's what you you know, it's a treat for me to, to go in salt water. I maybe get once or twice a year sometimes if I'm lucky. Um, but I just I just love it. Because I, I love any kind of visual fishing. Right? The hunt so, aspect. Yeah, so when I'm trout fishing, if I can see the fish and I can stalk it and I can get it to eat a nymph or something or a dry fly, see it come up and eat. You know, and it's the same thing in saltwater. They're just a lot bigger. So right. when are you going to fish the saltwater tournaments? <laughs> <laughs> well, I think I'd need a fair bit more practice before <laughs> that. Oh, you'll be fine. Um, if, on a fun day of fishing and you're nymphing, do you blind cast or do you hunt your fish? Uh, it depends really on, on the scenario. You know, if I'm on a, if I'm on a clear stream and conditions are good, fish are up on the fin, you know, I'll walk and I'll just... Up on the fin, what does that mean? Just sitting up, just a bit like a tarpon like when it's high up. in the water. Yeah, so we call it laid up, you call it finning up? Yeah, just sitting on the fin, in the current. Sitting on the fin. Sit, yeah. But you guys say, sitting on the fin. <laughs> that's it the right accent. Nicky's good come on Nicky rock that English accent no I'm, I'm stealing your show no, no but you know just... what that's one of the things that I've kind of gravitated to I think through Nicky's eyes these last number of years he kind of got me back into trout fishing because Nicky's a guide in the Aspen area in the summertime and we go to the river and we won't even cast until we find the fish yeah whether it be dry fly you know uh, feeding on on dry flies or whether it be you know hanging out in the current yeah no i mean it really depends on the on like i say on the situation for me so you know a lot of the times when it comes to tournament fishing we're fishing blind because we can't see them you got to catch fish we've got to catch fish and we're doing things which are based around being efficient rather than enjoying the fishing experience as much right. you know it's 
Yeah, I under, I understand that very well. Yeah. Um, you were telling me the other day we were at the trade show in Somerset, Jersey, where I was looking at some flies that uh, a shop was selling, and you were saying, "Nah, don't ever buy a fly from a shop. They're all rubbish." <laughs> you know? well, that was I, the I worst kinda, accent I've ever I heard. I kind of hammered life. that one up, <laughs> but. Uh, and you were telling me that you tie all your own flies, and you're saying most average store flies have terrible hooks. It, Why? It depends. It depends. You know that that was a bit of a, a broad ranging statement on my part, but it's there are good flies out there, and there are good hooks out there, and stuff has got way better over the last few years. It really has. Um, you know, I used to, from a competition perspective, I used to tie all of my own stuff, and to some degree, I still do, because. You know, when you're fishing at that kind of level and you've tried to rule everything else out, taking all the chance out of it as much as you can in anything to do with fishing, you know, the hook is the bit that's connecting you to the fish. Right. So, you know, when I tie flies for competition flies, you know, I dump the packet out on the table. If there's anything that's got a bit of a dodgy eye or it, the hook doesn't look right, it just gets binned. So you examine yeah. all the hooks before you even yeah, start tying. Yeah, I go through them all. Because I don't want to put the work into making right. something that then might sure. potentially let me down. But things I've got a lot better. There are some good flies out there now. What's the the weakest link in the market that most people don't understand? Would it be the hook? Uh, I don't really know. There's too many weak links out there now. I mean, the gear's getting better all the time. You can get right. good tippets. You can get. You don't have to look for it as hard as you used to. You know, I used to mess around all the time with finding thin nylon that was you know a good amount of stretch but not too much and would take a good knot and was abrasion resistant enough but there's good stuff out there right you can find it my father was telling me that you normally fish one fly uh i fish a lot of one fly techniques but i will fish two as well so your second fly is that tied off of the main line yeah it's on a dropper it's never in line you never tie off the bend of the hook why is that Uh, it's two reasons one's the regulations we've got all these rules we've got to work to the second is that it does impede the hooking efficiency of that hook it's tied off. You will catch fish on it, but particularly when the fish are pressured and the bite's really sort of tentative and it's not a full committal to eating the fly, tying off the bend reduces the number of good clean takes and good clean hook sets. You get. But so, also, so what I do is the first fly that I tie on, I tie the second fly off of that same eye. Yeah, you could do that. You could do that. I mean, again, we can't do it. The only reason I wouldn't do that is because when that fly is hanging on a dropper, it's going to fish and swim way better in the current. You know, all that, really, when you're tying on that eye, all you're really doing is you're pinning that fly a little bit more. And you will get some fish to eat it, but a lot of situations where fishing and it's it's really pressured. Those fish have been picked on a lot. You know, they've So the caught. action of the fly is, is uh, impeded. Yeah. Yeah, you're really pinning it in two points instead of having it on one point and Fishing a little bit more. Yeah. yeah. And what about split shot? Oh, man. I'm not a bait fisher. I don't need split shot. <laughs> You're a bear fisher. <laughs> bait fisher. I'm not bait fishing. There's the accent again. Yeah. No, we, we can't use split shot. It's In tournaments. No, oh, you can't? No split shot. It's The rules are like really complicated. The book is like this big. Wow. And most of those rules are written to keep it fly fishing, right? So... They don't want you using just monofilament on the reel. You've got to use a fly line. They don't want you using split shot. They don't want you using strike indicators. You can't use, uh, you know, a floating indicator. It's got to be 
organic. Yeah, it's got to be in line. It's got to be part of the leader. So we do use an indicator of sorts, but it's actually part of the leader. You know? And how and how is that formed? Uh, typically, it's it's coloured monofilament, um, but there are ways around it. There are dodges you can do. You know, we use paint pens and coloured wax and coloured grease, dependent on the situations. A lot of it's you know a lot of it's tinkering to get the to get everything fishing right and efficient and within the rules. You know. How do you get a very small, lightweight fly deeper in the water column when there's a lot of current, and you don't have uh, you know weight on your leader? Yeah, so there's a few ways. So the flies, if you're going to fish in, in hard, fast water, you want to get the fly down deep. The first thing is the fly design. The fly's got to be tied the right way. So that means typically you're not using flies that have got a lot of dubbing or a lot of hackle or anything like that. Pretty slim. Quite often with a varnished body, something like a perdigon which is a, a Spanish fly. It basically means pellet. So it looks like a little slug. It looks like a little uh, like a little missile. Almost. You're using pellet flies, huh? Yeah. yeah. Not trout, Come on. Not trout <laughs> pellet flies. Close. We know your trick now. <laughs> Just a handful of loose feet gets them going. <laughs> so like a little pellet, like a little bullet. Um, and there's other tricks. So let's say you've got a three millimeter bead and you've got to get it in fast water, which normally would take a four millimeter bead to get down to the fish. So the first thing you do, right fly, Second thing you do is make sure that tippet is thin enough so that it doesn't impede the drop of the fly. Third thing you do is rather than flipping it in the water, you drive it in the water. So like a little missile, you know, you'll pick so it'll sink faster. Yeah. So you turn, so you, you power that stroke. So the leader flips over real hard and yeah, drives I'm, that fly down. I'm just flipping it in with the wrist and it's shooting down. It's probably getting a foot of travel before the weight kicks in. So I'm driving that fly into the water. Um, then getting the control. And then the next thing, the, the last piece of the puzzle that most people miss is then how you lead that fly. Because most guys, especially the guys who urine in, which is a big thing now in the US, um, they'll lead that, they'll stay behind that fly all the time and they'll lead it down current. Right. Well, that leader is sitting, at, you know, quite a shallow angle to the fly. So you've got all that resistance in the current. If you get above it, and control over the top of it, you get a much more straight line path to the fly. And so you high stick that fish. You stay above it. You stay more above it if you can, and that'll let that fly get down. And that's why you use real long rods, so you can reach out. Better control, better you know, control of the drift, everything. So we tend to fish much longer rods. But you're fishing a hole or a riffle 10, 15 feet away from you? You're not fishing 30 feet Across it, the bank, it are depends. You? Sometimes we'll throw longer. Um, it, it really depends how the sort of water sets up in front of you and how tolerant those fish are. You know, because sometimes they're not tolerant at all, and you've got to you've got to stay way back. You know, and we use knee pads and all sorts of things. We crawl up in the river to them and to reduce that distance. Um, it really is scenario dependent. How far away is the right distance? Right. How many flies do you have in your fly box? It's a lot. It's a lot, but it's not many patterns. So my nymph box, Andy saw it the other day, it's maybe got 1,100 flies in it. Um, there's probably 10 fly patterns in there. Just different sizes and different sizes of beads, yeah, right? Yeah, different size, different weight. So the bead size determines how fast you want the fly to sink? Yeah, pretty pretty much. And you use tungsten hooks? They're right? all, all tungsten beads, yeah, a lot of jig hooks. Um Jig hooks are really popular now. You know, it's uh, you don't need them. Um, everyone thinks they fish upside down. They don't. They roll in that current quite a lot. Um, you still get snagged on them. Uh, but they hook up really well. 
You know, they do mm-hmm. hook fish well and they hold fish well. So jig hooks have become pretty much commonplace. But I also see your beads have different colors, pink and white and black. How do you assess what bead to fish, what color of bead uh, to fish? You know, I still keep trying to catch that talking trout and then can find out. But it's just one of those things. It's You will find there's patterns sometimes. You know, we'll, we'll go somewhere. If that water's like kind of a lot of snow melt and it's like white it's got a lot of that particulate in it like you get in the alps when you've got the snow melt coming in um orange works great hot orange brilliant color you catch a lot of fish in it clear water silver tends to work really well uh, when the water's got a little bit of uh like tannin stain or tea stain in it it's a little bit brown um copper great color but then you also see that sometimes the pressure on the fish dictates what they'll eat. So if you've got a, a stretch of river and a lot of guys are fishing, all fishing the same sort of coloured stuff, you then go and fish something a little bit different. That might trigger. You'll start getting takes to it. You know, it's it's a it's one of those things. There's often patterns in there, but sometimes you've got to work them out. You can't just work from a, a rule book, unfortunately. Right. So I'm really interested in this. So walk me through the world championships. So a river gets decided yeah, by a board or... Yeah, so basically what happens is there's a, there's a process, countries apply, right? And they'll say, we want to hold the world championships. Here are the venues that we want to use. And it's nearly always river heavy, right? Sometimes it's not, you know, it's sometimes there's rivers and lakes mixed together uh, in equal quantities, but it's pretty much heavily biased to rivers. Uh, and we'll fish, um, now the new format is we'll fish five days, and we'll fish one session per day of between three to four hours. Um, and it'll be across five different venues. So a team is five men. We all get split into five groups. And we rotate through those venues as a, as a group of international anglers. So there'll be one from every country. All go to this venue. Then we move to the next venue. When you say venue, is that a section of the river? Yeah. So it'll be like, uh, let's say, a, an eight or a ten mile stretch of river maybe. And we all get a beat. We all get one section. So there'll be two sticks in the ground, and that is your water for three hours. And that's normally 300 yards? Well, there's, so there's rules in the, you know, there's, you're supposed to get 125 meters. I've had 50 meters, and I've had a kilometer. Wow. You know, it can vary dependent on the horse country, right? So, and you can get really good water, and you can get terrible water. Terrible water mean you could get a beat behind a bunch of really good fishermen? No, just meaning there's not many fish there's not in many it. There's not many fish in it. Not many fish in it. And you've got to be able... Sometimes these things come down to one fish. Literally one fish or millimeters of one fish. And so how is a judge? You catch a fish and you you take the total length of the fish and you add them up? Yeah, there's a there's a, a minimum size they set. You know, it's it can be anything. 20 centimeters, 25 centimeters. Normally somewhere 20 to 30 um, fish gets measured, gets released. That fish dies, you're losing your points. You know, fish curs like right high on the agenda. So, you know, that fish has got to go back safe. And you have an observer that measures these fish? He stands there on the bank. He's making sure you're following the rules, that you're taking care of the fish, that the fish are measured accurately, the whole whole right. shooting match. You right. know, So you've got a judge on the bank behind you. Wow. How important is winning the world championships uh, aside from the personal... Um, pride yeah i mean for me it was always a it was just always something i wanted to do you know right. I, kind of like the tarpon tournaments and bonefish tournaments yeah there's not a lot of money in it the, no i mean it cost me a, a lot of money to compete really mm-hmm. you know per se it's not 
especially when you factor in all the time I spend practicing and traveling and all time away from home. And- is it is it more important in Europe than it is in the United States? Because uh, generally speaking, we never speak about world championship fly fishing. And unless you're in the saltwater world, nobody understands what the Gold Cup means. Yeah. But in Europe, is the freshwater world championships a big deal? Yeah, I would say it's a bigger thing than, than in the U.S. Um, I mean, you know, typically it can be anything up to 30, 32 countries is about the most that we get. Wow. Um, and some countries even put two teams in. You know, occasionally there'll be a, there used to be a men and a ladies team from some other countries. Um, and then we have a European championships as well, which is, a, again, a smaller event. It's probably about half the teams, sort of like 15-ish, around about there. Um, but it's it's become, especially in the U.S., I mean, there's more... The U.S. teams are doing a lot better now. They used to come right down in the bottom three all the time. But over the, in recent years... They're vying at they, the top. Well, they've really got their act together now, and they're always pushing for medals, and they've got a really strong team. Yeah. You know, it's they've got way better. So my father told me that you fish across a river, and you might fish back across the same section that you just went through. Occasionally. It just depends, you know, not always. If it's grailing fishing, yeah, because grailing are really tolerant. I mean, not always, but a lot of the time, grailing will come straight back to where they were. So, so you, you won't can, spook you, them. You they'll can, come back to the same area. No, they'll, sometimes they'll follow you around. They'll just swim around because you're kicking stuff up off the bottom right. when they're eating it. Um, I mean, we've got rules in place so that you can't purposely disturb the riverbed or anything like that. Chum your old you can't down that. water. That's, that's not fishing. Yeah. But, you know, you can... If you fish across a piece of river, sometimes when you've got grailing, they're just lying doggo, they're switched off. They're just comatose, they're just not interested. But if you move them, then they come back, they come back switched on. But that's mm-hmm. not the case with, with trout? Trout usually will spook. Right. So usually you'll not cover the same ground. I mean, one of my adages in competition fishing was always catch one, spook two. So if I catch a trout from a piece of water and I fight it, then I'm usually thinking... Uh, there was probably two, maybe three sitting there. So in the process of hooking and landing, I'll move those fish, and quite typically within five to ten minutes, they're gonna they're gonna wander back. So I'll often redo the same good water again, you know, because good water is good water, right? Hmm. You know, so they're gonna go back in there again. What's well, interesting when we fish Colorado, a lot of times we don't even really move very far. You know, some days we do, we go way up the canyon, but if it's good. We might just stay in a section that's got a hundred yard section. Well, one one hole might have twenty fish. Yeah, yeah. But what drives me crazy is when you're down there and all of a sudden you look up and somebody just walks in on top of you, fifty yards away. Is <laughs> yeah, there is, is there a problem with with that? Uh, where you fish, people's getting fights and arguments. But hey, that you know, don't come so close. Like no. in, like in the saltwater world. No, we're lucky in the UK. We're lucky because we got a lot of fishermen, but a lot of fishermen who just fish in lakes and fish for stock rainbow trout don't really go near the river and we've got great river fishing you know and it's not pressured have you ever fished the test i've fished the test many many times and it's tell me about this uh this one of the most renowned fishing uh, spots on the, on the planet it is I, and you know you isaac put, walton fished there a lot of the famous yeah early i mean guys. it's it's the history of fly fishing right a lot of it and it's it's an incredible place to fish it really is but you've just got to approach it the way I approach it is for what it is, right? So it's a beautiful place. You're going to catch some fish because there's stacks of fish in it, you know. 
but it's it is manicured it's a very manicured environment you've got closely mown grass all the weeds kept under control you've got a big head of fish which are not that selective if the truth be known they're not hard to catch right so you've got to show some restraint and to, you know. don't go in there and what, catch all their their pets but it's dry yeah. it's dry fly only some of it yeah. yeah some of it up to a certain point of the year you can only dry fly fish and then you know after july typically you can you can throw a nymph and you're always gonna you're always gonna catch something right. what, what did you do when you were at the test i caught the biggest brown trout in there <laughs> <laughs> of course i did no but didn't you guys go in there with like nymph rigs and stuff that was, <laughs> like, sh- that was like a chartreuse toad that's what i heard yeah, anyway i mean fish in the swing i heard you banned that's what i heard <laughs> didn't you go in there with I'm not with Bob. I'm, I'm not talking about anything. <laughs> right. I'm asking Howard about the good old days and the test. Uh, one of the things that you made mention last week that I found fascinating is that when you know you have a spot where there's a bunch of trout that are feeding, and I asked you how hard it is to see your, you know, uh, a strike with the leader without an indicator, and you were saying a lot of times you'll just strike knowing that the fly is in their in their face. Yeah, so that's we're is getting. That a, is that a yeah, secret? To all the secrets. Now, Are we getting into some dark, yeah, some dark stuff. It's dark, but it's not. It's not a big secret. Tell me about that. So everybody thinks. So when when fish get pressured and trout get pressured, everybody thinks they just they stop eating. You know that they're just not intercepting things that are coming down the current. That's not strictly speaking true. What does happen is when they when they intercept something, rather than that that sort of reaction being an aggressive reaction and quite a clear indication that they've eaten it it just becomes a lot more tentative they'll take it in and they'll blow it out straight away and even when you're fishing well and you've got good control and everything's going well your contact to the fly is never what you think it is and you miss a lot of strikes those fish are mouthing those things a lot of the time and you don't even know it's happening so a lot of good competitors some of the top guys what they'll do is when that fly gets into somewhere where you're expecting a fish, they'll just set the hook and throw it back in again. Because we're making relatively short drifts a lot of the time. And if you do that a lot through good water, you're going to intercept and convert a good number of those takes. Just as that fish hits it, you've set and it's on. Any snagging of, um, it, it, with that scenario? No, it's so it's so rare to actually foul hook a Cause, fish. Because the flies are so small. It's surprising really, but... It, you just don't seem to foul hook right. fish. And to, if you did just, anyway, they don't they don't count. Oh, they don't count. So, no, so you wouldn't yeah. you won't even want to do it anyway. Right. So. <clears throat> we were talking about dropping pebbles off of a bridge. Tell me about that. Yeah, so I, I, I feel, when I'm not fishing, I fool around a lot with fish if I can. You know, when we had COVID and I couldn't fish, I've got a river just like right down the hill from the house. So every day my one hour allowed walk, which is what you're allowed to do. You know, I just went out and messed around. So I was flicking little bits of gravel off a bridge at fish I can see. These are wild fish just sitting in the current. And typically what happens is you, you flick a bit of gravel at them and they'll come over straight away and they'll eat it. You know, they'll just suck it in and then you'll see them blow it out. Give it a few seconds, flick them another bit and they'll still react to it, but they won't eat it, you mm. know. You throw something else in the water, maybe a different colour or something that sinks different, They'll often eat it again, straight away. So they're just sort of associating, you know, that they eat it, oh, it's not food, they blow it. It's a reaction bite. Yeah. So you can you can work some things out with that. So you think on the tr- traditional nymph rig where people have an indicator and two flies and a 
couple split shot, they miss a lot of the bites and the indicator never shows. Oh, 100%. There's so much interference going on there. You know, you've got two the split shot, two, two flies, flies two split, split shot, shot. big, in, there's all this stuff going on. The, the best presentation really of a nymph is you want to be as connected, you want to be as unconnected to it as possible, if that makes sense. You want, you want contact, but you don't want all this stuff between you and the fly. The interference. Yeah, you don't want interference. You just want, you know, that fly is going to behave better. Everything that happens to it will be transmitted better, you know. And for sure, there's times when you need some kind of suspension rig, certain kinds of water or certain scenarios. And that means a strike indicator as far as the suspension rig. Yeah. Or I mean, if you're, if you're throwing 50 feet to a far bank, it's hard to get a perfect drift unless you have an indicator that anchors that fly line or that leader so you can mend and yeah. you still get a perfect drift under that indicator. Yeah. Am I correct or am I wrong? You're correct, but a good friend of mine once said that's what waders are for. Right. What so, happens if you have really big current and you can't wade across there or get to it, but you still have passive water on the far side and with a good long cast, a high rod, and you can mend, mend like yeah. hell, and you have that indicator kind of holding you know, the flying position. Yeah. So and, we, we used to swim. I mean, they banned it now. We can't swim anymore. But in those scenarios, we used to just swim across and get and zero down the distance and then fish a tight line method to them rather than... Because the thing is with an indicator in a, in a competition, when you're throwing that range and you're throwing across a lot of complex water, it's fine sticking the fish, but you've got to bring it back. You've got to fight it back across fast, right. deep water or whatever. You've got it in play for a long time. There's a better chance of it coming off. So we used to always try and still do, try and zero the range down so that when you do get a take, it registers clean, you set the hook clean, and you can hopefully play it pretty So cool. even fun fishing, you never use an indicator? Oh, yeah, I'll use them sometimes. Oh, you will? Yeah, I'll use them Give sometimes. Give me that scenario, just like what I was explaining just now. Yeah, so in the, in the winter, if I'm grailing fishing, it's cold. You know, I don't want to wade deep and fall in because I do sometimes. You know, I'll I'll throw some form of indicator and, and use it to drift down a pool. Right. What about streamer fishing? Yeah, do quite a lot of streamer fishing. I, I mean, I usually fish them on a Euro rig, so on a on a level leader rather than throwing a sinking line. I'll fish them a little bit like a nymph and just twitch them out at the end of the swing or, or swing them out. Um, but I asked you last week if you had one fly... To fish. Is this another secret you don't want to? No, if you had one not. fly to fish, what fly would that be? And what'd you tell me? I told you a, a black streamer or like a woolly bugger because pretty much everything eats it, right? It's it's one of those flies that just works. You know, it doesn't matter. I mean, even grailing eat them, which people don't think grailing eat streamers. They do. Even European grailing. I mean, Arctic grailing are a little different. They're a lot more aggressive and they'll eat pretty much anything. European grayling, got a little smaller mouth, don't react in the same way to big flies, but they'll still eat a streamer sometimes. So you can you can catch pretty much anything on it. You know? It's not my and, favorite but, flight to but fish. But you also said too, which is interesting, you, you cast that streamer upstream and drift it straight back towards you and into the fish's face. Yeah, I, I, fish, up, I fish a lot of streamers upstream or upstream and pull them back down and across. And the reason is, there's two reasons really. One is when you fish it downstream and across, the hooking angle's pretty poor. I mean, you can manufacture a good hooking angle by mending and doing all sorts of things. But pretty much, essentially, the fly's swimming across the current with some control, tight line contact. 
Fish is coming up from behind it, taking it. It's really got to take it and turn away to get the the nice hook up in the in the corner of the mouth. Now, sometimes when they're really active, that works great. And you're going to get them like that. But if they're not that aggressive and they're not feeding aggressively, if you bring that fly down in the current to them, it, it triggers the sort of fight or flight response. So if it's sitting there and, and that little thing's swimming at it, even if it doesn't want to eat it, it's going to get territorial and it's going to probably attack it and it's going to attack it with its mouth. So you're getting that, you know, you get two plays really. Mm-hmm. So you get a much better hooking angle, but you're also getting the fish that potentially going to eat it because they think it's coming down dead in the current towards them. But you're also going to get the fish that think, that thing's invading my space, I'm going to kill it, you know? So I get a, I fish a lot of my streams upstream. And you net your fish in midair? Sometimes. It just depends how big they are, you know, so... But even a smaller fish, I can't imagine yanking it out of the river without breaking your 7X. Because I was told that you go with your rod in one hand and a net in the other, you hook one and you flip them right into your net. Yeah, when it's when it's smaller fish, because all, all, all it is really, it's an extension of the fish jumping when you stick the hook in it. So when you're fishing away upstream, if you've got it on a short, relatively short line in the pocket water or something like that, and you, you get that take, you set the hook, those fish often jump out the water straight away. Well, all you do then is just keep them coming because you, you've got the tension to them. You know, they come off barbless hooks because there's no tension, right? So if it hits the water and gets traction, it can throw the hook a lot of the times. So we just keep them coming. Great big net. Before it knows what's happened, it's in the net and it's swimming <laughs> off back in the current, none the wiser, you know? And you're using 10-foot rods or what? what's kind of like your rod that, your go-to rod? At ten Between 10 and 11. 11? Yeah, 10 wow. and 11 feet. Just so you can keep uh, that line off the water and get a good drift yeah, for better, the most part. Good control at range. Right. Um, but I mean, dry fly fishing, use nine foot rods, you know. What makes a, well, let's get into the rod design a little bit. When did you first get into rod design and what gave you the insight to be able to be hired by a company to de- design rods? Uh, I mean, I, pretty much when I, when I started at Hardy's, which is nearly 20 years ago now, uh, it seems like yesterday, but, um, you know, I was doing the tournament casting. I was competition fishing and I, and I got a start in product development. It was like product development assistant or something. I can't, so you, can't remember what I was. So you had a mentor that was designing rods and you were working. Yeah, them. there was a lot of good people at, at Hardy and there still is who were, you know, we had materials guys, we had engineers, we had all sorts of things. And we had some really good fishermen as well. Um, but sort of when I when I sort of came in, I was um, I was probably doing more trout fishing than anybody else. You know, we had some incredible um, salmon anglers in the in the company, and to be fair, very good trout anglers and casters as well. Um, but I sort of slipped into that product development role, um, and then some guys left and moved around, and I sort of kept you know moving up the kind of product development chain, and then ended up being sort of responsible for the. Certain all of the action development on all of the fly rods and the input from a fishing perspective, a lot of it, mm-hmm. you know. What in your eyes makes a good fly rod? It's it's got to be there's there's too many fly rods out there right now that are, and actually there's less now than there was, but that are just casting weapons. Right. You know, it's it's great that it can carry, you know, sixty feet of line out of tip ring, and you can throw one hundred and ten feet with it. You got to fish with the thing, you know, and it. A good fly rod should be a balance of that capability to put the fly where you need it to be if you're a good caster and, you know, feel good and cast well. 
but it's got to be a good fishing tool for me, and a lot of rods aren't. I think we had this conversation when I was hired 14 years ago to help bring the hardy saltwater stuff up to speed. Yeah. And I've always told people, look, there are a lot of great casting rods out there. Almost every ca- every rod company throws 100 feet if you want, but what rod throws 30? Yeah. Because in the salt, a lot of your good shots later in the day without good light are very close. And ha- what rod's going to turn over a 15-foot leader at 20, 30, 40 feet? Yeah, 100%. And then it becomes a great fishing rod. Yeah. And that's something I got wrong, I'll be honest. when I The very, very first saltwater rods I worked on, um, I didn't get it right. You know, because, but were you thinking, like I just made mention, or what were you thinking in the first years of saltwater design? Well, I'd, I'd done limited saltwater fishing 20 years ago. I'd been like once, and I thought, you know, a lot of it's more about range. It's more about being able Distance. to cast in strong wind, all that kind of stuff. So I was putting those attributes over the ability to load at short range and turn over just a leader and a bit of fly line. And that, that first time we fished together, that's when I sort of thought, right, get it now. You know, some of these casts are not, you know, we fished that together that day and you caught like three fish in the last hour of the day or whatever. And there were two of them within like 20 feet of the boat, you know, so I didn't really appreciate that. Until you saw it. Yeah. How did, uh, I think we were the first company that came up with a Centrix resin, which basically allowed us to build a rod that's 60% stronger and 30% lighter than any of the other rods. But a lot of companies had the Centrix resin, the 3M resin. When did you first see that resin? And when did you first see how great that resin was as a far as a product to, to glue rods together? Yeah, so we did, a, we did a lot of development work in, it was like 2010, 2011. Might have even been as early as 2009 from memory. Uh, my memory's getting bad I'm getting old um, but we got access to that resin as did a lot of other companies um, we did a lot of playing around with it we had some external uh, sort of resource that came in and gave us a bit of a leg up in terms of some of its applications uh, and we just really what we came up with was a a really good recipe right that's why I tell everybody like, like everybody bakes a cake yeah with the same products yeah. But some people bake that cake better. Yeah, we just squeezed more out of it. Uh, and we, how do you do that without letting any I'd, secrets out? I'd have to kill you, Andy. I just can't <laughs> tell you, you know. <laughs> but tell me about the breaking. You know, when you were testing rods and you you built these rods with the Centrix resin and the difference with the rods with the resin. Yeah, so the, the very first ones we built, we built some saltwater rods. And we had a we had a static deflection rig that just pulls, a you know, weight pulls it and it Gives you a read out what it breaks up. So you, you bend the tip down towards the, the handle of the rod, and all of a sudden it's going to break at some point. Yeah, in, we did two, measures. Two, main, two main static deflection tests. One was a deadlift. So like if you if you imagine from a fishing scenario, if, you, if you're deadlifting at the side of the boat, that's the first test. It pulls it straight up. The second one, which we always used to just call the rod killer, is where you're pulling that tip ring in towards the actual butt of the rod, so you're hooping it. So you're getting the real sort of... right curvature in the blank i think that's what i saw in the video yeah we did a lot of that stuff and the first rods that we is actually the second series of rods that we developed with it or second set of prototypes that we developed with it um it was just like they didn't break some of them didn't break and the ones that did had really high breakage results so much so that we actually got um an external company to come in and and check the load sensor test your testing yeah because we didn't we didn't think it was reading right 
That's what I was telling Nikki wow. when he first started breaking these rods with the Centrix resin. It's like this can't be this can't be real. Yeah, we thought we had some kind of issue with the with the gauge, and they came and said, "Oh no, it's all good." So that's when we sort of realized. We thought, right, well, this is we're getting more out of this, you know. And then we built the prototypes, and we came down here with them. Came down here twice, down into the keys, I think, and just did some insane stuff with. And we were you know. testing with the shark fishing with these rods. Yeah, we did all those uh, black tips. You're right. Um, but That's then, a great video. Yeah, that was that was a bunch of I, fun. I've been trying to break this rod for 14 years. <laughs> I can't break it. You you haven't broken one. I have. I I have tried. I can unless you. Yeah, anybody can break any rod if you take that rod and put it behind yeah, you. Fish it you incorrectly. Get, yeah, incorrectly. Yeah, but. Even fishing a little bit incorrectly outside of putting my hand up here with kind of a higher rod, I can't. I haven't been able to break one. Yeah, nothing's nothing's indestructible. Nothing, but for sure, they are the been significantly stronger. You know, uh, is that resin here to stay uh, in rod design? Yeah, we're looking at new things. We're looking at some new stuff now. Um, we're always looking. You know, right. you can't stop. So we've got some new materials guys on board now, who are really looking at substituting out some of the materials that we used to use for for something new to give us another incremental step. How so. many rod manufacturers are using this Centrix, Centrix resin and are any baking it the same way you guys are? You know, that, that's the trick. I really couldn't tell you how what their process is, you know. But I'm sure there's guys still using something similar because those resins, all those types of resins have become common, more available. They're not all the same. It's like anything. You know, um, but we're still doing our thing. Getting, we're we're very comfortable with in terms of results. Right. Um, you know, but we're always looking. You know, what's the next thing? What's the next thing? Because you've got to. You know, gotta things keep, are going to keep improving. Right. Right. Well, it's interesting in that 14 years ago, our first prototype rod and reel won the gold cup. Yeah. And and last year the top seven teams, you know, were fishing hardy. You know, I hate to make this sound like like a, an infomercial. But the saltwater product is as great as the uh, freshwater product now, so the spectrum has been filled. Yeah, we we didn't have that. You know, we didn't have any presence really in right. saltwater, and you know. Yeah, what uh, what would you like to add to this conversation? We've covered a lot. You know, with the casting, uh, being in the world championship uh, freshwater fisherman that you are, and rod designer. Yeah, I mean, I don't know. It's just been an awesome ride. It really has. It's you know, for me. When I learn how to fish, you know, my dad and my uncle, um, you know, they they were the guys who, who got me fishing. My dad wasn't a fly angler. Um, you know, he was a course fisherman, you know, a competition course angler. And what does that mean, course, for the people who don't? Uh, like whitefish, like uh, bream and carp and all that kind so of stuff. A, not, a, a, not a game fish. Right. You know, but he got me into fly fishing um, because, you know, we had a, we got a holiday home uh, in a nice part of the UK near a trout river because I had some health issues when I was younger. So they took me up there because it was cleaner and it was fresh and all that kind of stuff. And, I, you know, him and my uncle uh, got me into, got me into fly fishing. And then, you know, it's just, it's just weird the sort of route you take, you know, because I just, I started off working in a fly shop and then, ended up you know product development for probably the most famous fishing tackle brand in the world really you know celebrating 150 years this year yeah it's just yeah, been the oldest it is a little bit mind-boggling yeah. you know well you know my whole life growing up in aspen was basically a skier but my roots were as much fly fishing as as they were skiing and now in these later years my whole life has been consumed over the last 40 years 
of spending time traveling around the world, fishing these great locations with great people and catching these awesome fish. Uh, and fish, we all can all agree, they have great homes. Jobs. You know? yeah, it's, a, it's a lifestyle as much as it is uh, a sport and a, and a hobby. That's it. I mean, I've never fished in an ugly place. You know, it's pretty much if there's fish there, it's... Yeah. It's going to be special. But it's crazy to imagine that we can actually target billfish with fly rods and go catch all the billfish out there. You know, the marlin, the striped marlin, the white marlin, the swordfish, the yes. spearfish. Yeah. So the spectrum of fly fishing is unlimited. Oh, it's huge from anything from, you know, little things like that. And, that's, and to be honest, that's one thing about competition fishing, right? So I get, and some people can't understand this, but when you're in like session five in a world's, and you're fishing for, you know, one fish, and that one fish is potentially going to, as, as luckily happened to me, was enough to make me world champion, was one fish. You know, if that fish, I mean, where else can you get the, the sheer adrenaline rush of landing a 20-centimetre trout? I mean, it's tiny, 20-centimetre trout. But if, there's, if that's all you need... For a world championship title. You know... That is that little twenty centimeter fish. That's is, your best catch of your life, that probably. Is pure adrenaline. You know, I can remember every one of the fish from the worlds in nineteen that got me over the line. There was there was actually three of them, and if any one of those three fish had not caught or lost, I would have been second. Wow. You know. You know, and and here too, like in the black and blue tournament in uh, in Cabo. I think the payout on that term is like $4 million now, 3 to $4 million. It's crazy to see, even on a fun day of fishing. Though, I mean, obviously, that's a extreme differences because there's so much on the line. Yeah. The World Championships, $4 million. But when, you, when you're fishing, and I remember these kids, when they were little at the dock at the Chica Lodge catching these little, <laughs> you know, snapper, it does something to your heart. It does something to your being. Yeah, fishing is cool. It is. It's been it's been awesome. Been an incredible ride. You know, even my wife to be fishes. She loves it. You know, I'm getting married in July, so you know that might be the end of the competitions. I don't know. You know, I might have to sell all my gear. It's going to be the end of something for sure. Uh, that's it. <laughs> it's a marriage. Hi, hi dear. <laughs> well, Howard, it's great having you here at the house. It's been great working with you over the last 14 years and and fishing too. It's been so, it's been awesome. Thanks, yeah, Andy. Man. Yeah, my pleasure. Thank really you so much. It. Thanks yeah. a lot, man. Thanks so much, Howard. Cheers, Nikki. That was fun. Yep. There are few people in this world that know more about trout fishing, rod and reel design, and casting mechanics than Howard Croston. He is a wealth of knowledge that takes his profession above and beyond. If you've enjoyed this episode. Please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. And if you want to see more content or behind the scenes, please follow us on Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube. We'll see you again soon.